Let me pray. Uh, Lord, as we uh, experienced last week, uh, life can get exciting. Uh, we do not know what lies around the corner. We do not know what this day or the next day holds, and that is uh, at times terrifying. Uh, as we experienced last week, uh, that can be very unsettling. And yet, Lord, I am brought comfort to know that you are not surprised, and that there's nothing that happened last week or any day uh, this week or anything today that is outside of your command and your control. And so while we live in, in moment-to-moment uncertainty, we have a rock that does not. So, Lord, it was good to sing that this morning, that you are our rock. And when we find ourselves uh, blown about by the daily circumstances that we encounter, Lord, you are still there for us. You are in control. This is your world. You are God. Uh, and, Lord, I'm thankful that you are my rock, but I am most thankful that you are my redeemer, that you have invested in us, that you have bought humanity back if we place our trust in you, that you, you want us. And so thank you for that. Heavenly Father, I do pray just your assistance as we uh, study your word together in a hot sanctuary on a smoky Sunday morning, Lord. There are many opportunities for distraction, and yet, Lord, I pray that you would use your word as powerfully as you have given it to us, Lord, that it would speak to our hearts as we need it. It would encourage us in the areas that we need that as well. Heavenly Father, may this time be uh, honoring and glorifying to you. I ask for your help with that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, the responsibility to name a child is a big responsibility. It's hard. You're going to give them a name that they are going to be stuck with for the rest of their lives. Sure, you as a, as a parent maybe will pass along many other things that they'll always have. Perhaps like me, it would be disproportionate cheek-to-face ratios and elevational difficulties. There's things you're going to give that you don't get to pick. But you do get to pick a name, and so that carries with it this, this weight. You have to ask yourself, does this name pass the playground test? What does this name rhyme with? What teasing am I involuntarily or voluntarily inflicting on my own children? And there are some names that if you name a child that, you're just a bad parent. <laughs> I won't say any of the names here, but you've heard names. You have a couple that came to mind. Then there's the day-to-day -day use test for a name. Is this a name that I can shout quickly? Is this a name that I can keep straight with the names of my other children? <laughs> nope. Could I at least say their names before I get to the dog? Uh, <laughs> some of you families have, have multiple children, all with the same first initial. And I ask, I don't know how you do that. Life is hard enough as it is without adding some of these additional challenges on top of it this morning. Uh, we're going to find ourselves in a, in a spot in the story in the, in the Bible where I wish God would have chosen different names. Uh, we are, are going to be discussing Elijah, but we are also going to be discussing his transition to his successor, Elisha. And I cannot tell you how many times this week as I was writing that I had to hit backspace and make sure that I put the right name in there because those two names just weave together so wonderfully. Elisha will succeed Elijah. Elijah, Elisha, Elisha, Elijah. Pray for me this morning. Uh, <laughs> I will get it wrong. I got it wrong several times in the last service, so I'm, I'm asking for a little bit of grace, but I do think it is an important story uh, and one that I think we can learn from. Uh, this might be one of those moments where we just have to trust in God's wisdom that these are the two prophets that, that he put in succession, or just openly acknowledge that sometimes he likes to laugh at us and see us tongue-tied a little bit. But 
uh, we, will, we will do our best to get through it this morning. If you were here uh, the previous uh, week, we saw a really iconic story, a story from the life of Elijah where he confronts the idolatry that had taken over the nation of Israel. God in this moment demonstrates his authority and superiority when he answers through fire. He answers the prayer of Elijah. And Elijah stood alone on this mountaintop as God's sole representative against all odds. He was victorious. Really cool moment we got to see last week. But we also saw that Elijah didn't stay on that mountaintop for very long. And a short while after, mere hours later, after having his life threatened by the evil queen Jezebel, Elijah is on the run in total fear. And we saw that his faith failed him, and he asks God to mercifully end his life since he's convinced that he's going to be killed by Jezebel soon enough anyway. But God, in his kindness and in his wisdom, lovingly ignores Elijah's prayer, and he proceeds to care for Elijah on a variety of levels. Starts with his physical needs and, and, and a good nap and a good meal. And so after God cares for Elijah, and where we're going to pick up this morning, we see that God tells Elijah it's time to get back to work that God is not done with him yet. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, we will start in verse 14. And what we're going to see here is that Elijah is sent to go find Elisha. 1 Kings 19 verse 14 says this, He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to the death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram, and also anoint Jehum, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meheloah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So up to this point, Elijah felt like he was the only one still fighting. Felt like a game of tug of war, and he was the only person on his end of the rope. Now God had demonstrated his power on Mount Carmel that this wasn't going to be a numbers game. Elijah was outnumbered, and yet God was still uh, successful in demonstrating who he was. But I think we see the, the humanity in Elijah. I think we see the weakness in Elijah, that he feels, I would say very reasonably, overwhelmed and worn out. But God has a plan, and he shares it with Elijah, that God has a plan to bring his people back from idolatry, and Elijah is given a three-part assignment. The first step was to anoint uh, Hazael king over Aram, and then the second was to anoint Jehu king over Israel. And if you want to do a little bit of study, since this is the, the last week that we'll be doing on this series, you can read in 2 Kings and see the, some of the different roles that these two men uh, played that we're not going to cover this morning. But the third task that he is given is the task of anointing Elisha, someone to assist and to come alongside Elijah and eventually to succeed him. God had a plan for other people besides just Elijah uh, to help get the nation back on track. We're giving an, an interesting clarification in verse 18. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal 
and whose mouths have not kissed him. God is correcting Elijah, says, your assessment of the situation isn't quite right. You feel completely alone, but I'm telling you that you're wrong. Not everything that God was doing in that moment was was visible for Elijah to see. It was not as one-sided as Elijah felt that it was. And I think we can see in this moment part of our human tendencies that Elijah is, is demonstrating to focus on that which is just right in front of our faces. And the failure to trust God who sees so much more of what's going on. I've heard it said, and and I find it to be a a comforting statement, that that you would make the decisions that God makes if you knew what God knows. I like that, uh, because there are times that I think God should do something different. And there are more times that I would like to admit where I think that I'm smarter than God. But stories like this from Elijah remind me that I don't have the full picture. Elijah, until God revealed it to him, did not have the full picture. And moments like that help me to trust God when I don't fully understand the picture. That Elijah is ready to to get back to work and go and do what God has asked him to go and do next. And so we see that he he sets off on a journey to go find Elijah. Elijah, there we go, got it wrong. Uh, Elisha will leave behind everything he has to follow after Elijah and to follow after God. 1 Kings chapter 19, picking up in verse 19. So Elijah went out from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back, and he took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them, and he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. So we see this scene here where Elijah comes to where Elisha is out plowing in the field, and you actually get the idea that Elisha comes from a a little bit of money a little bit of wealth due to the fact that he's plowing with 12 pairs of oxen, which would imply that he had a pretty big chunk of land that he uh, was responsible for. And so Elijah comes up alongside Elijah, and we're told he throws his cloak over his shoulders. And, and we would probably use the phrase, passing the torch. And he's anointing Elisha in this gesture as his future successor. Um, This isn't something that's common to us. This isn't how we would typically do it. But you see by the response of Elisha that he knew exactly what was being symbolically uh, done to him. And we see that Elisha is willing to follow, that he stops what he's doing and begins to to, to go after Elijah. And then he, he stops and goes, can I go and say goodbye to my family before I leave? And Elijah responds, go back. What have I done to you? And to my ears, maybe to your ears, it sounds a little gruff. It it comes across as as maybe not uh, the kindest response, uh, but I don't think it has that tone at all to Elisha. I think what he's actually kind of saying is, I'm not stopping you. Go take care of what you need to take care of, and, and then we'll be leaving. We see an interesting parallel where this is handled a little bit differently in the New Testament. In, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is discussing the cost of being one of his followers, and, and one of uh, them come up to him and say, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. 
So we're left with this different response to, to maybe a similar question. And so uh, I pose this to you. Is, is Elijah kind and gracious and Jesus insensitive and demanding? I think it's important to know that we see different responses because we see different motivations behind the questions. Jesus in this section is making the point that following after him is going to be difficult. There are always going to be reasons not to do it right now. There are always going to be worldly distractions competing for your attention. I think we see in Jesus' response that perhaps it was a less than genuine request and more of a stalling tactic. And we can see this in people as well as now as they respond to Jesus. I'll follow Jesus when I'm ready. I'll follow Jesus when the timing works out, when I get this done or that done. But Jesus, in this moment with his disciples, pushes back and says, it doesn't work that way. If you're going to follow me, follow me right now. So Elijah asks to, to go back, and Elijah grants it. And Elisha goes back and takes his tools and uses the, the, the former tools to start a big fire and provide a big meal for his community. So I don't think we see in Elisha that he was stalling. He's actually destroying all of the connections back to his previous way of life. I think of a, a carpenter that gets out of carpentry would go and perhaps sell all of their tools because they're no longer needed. They're not going back to that life. Uh, I personally got out of carpentry uh, about 10 years ago to become uh, a pastor, and I wish I would have sold all my tools, the amount of house projects that could have been avoided. <laughs> Someone would have just shared this passage with me and said, you know, 10 years ago, sell all your tools and delete Pinterest from your wife's phone. I just didn't know where that path was going yet, and I feel like I've learned something today. So Elisha is not begrudgingly following Elijah. He's not bummed that he got tagged, wishing he would have taken off quicker when he saw him. You actually get this picture of excitement, the, a joyful going away party with his family. Look what I'm being called to go and do. Elisha is all in. He has no intentions of coming back to this way of life, and, and he will go on to serve faithfully under Elijah and alongside Elijah for many years. But he won't serve under him forever. At some point, it will be time for him to take over for Elijah that he will take on the mantle of prophet and the role of Elijah. If you still uh, have your Bible open, fast forward a couple of chapters to 2 Kings chapter 2, is where our story will continue this morning. A couple of the chapters that we're skipping over, they, they move past the, the disgraceful end to the life of King Ahab and the, the life of his son Ahaziah, who doesn't do much better than his father or his mother. Elijah has served faithfully for a good long point at this time, and God is ready to call him home. But before he does, we see that Elijah tests Elisha's commitments. 2 Kings chapter 2, picking up in verse 1. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, "'Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel.'" But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elijah and asked, you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. 
And company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elijah and asked him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. When I uh, read this, I find myself asking a, a very important question. Is Elijah a jerk? I'm a younger brother. I know what it feels like to be ditched. <laughs> Maybe I see him trying to get, you know, Elisha to stay behind the first time. I, I can understand the parent that needs to make a quick run into Fred Meyer, so we offer to just leave the kids in the car. It saves time. It saves money. You don't have to share candy. Like, it works out for everybody. But Elijah does this again and again and does it three times. He goes, hey, God is sending me to Bethel. You should stay here. And Elijah goes, nah, I'm, I'm going to go with you. Elijah goes, oh, now I need to go to Jericho. You should stay here. Elijah goes, seriously, no, I'm coming with you. And then finally he goes, you know, I, I need to go onto the Jordan after this. You look like you could use some time off. Why don't you stay here for a while while I go on? And Elisha responds emphatically, I am going wherever you go. So let's get moving. There's sort of this awkward elephant in the room where both Elijah and Elisha know that Elijah is, is leaving soon. And there's these other prophets around and, and we don't know a lot about them. We don't know if these are like the JV prophets or the B team prophets or the night shift or what their, what their role is. We don't get a lot of details. Maybe they wanted to take over for uh, Elijah. They wanted to be the successor, but they keep coming up to Elisha and kind of poking him like, you know, he's leaving soon, right? And you start to see a little edge, the tension in Elijah, like, I know, be quiet. So what's the motivation? Why is Elijah doing this? Why is he asking him to stay behind? Why is he offering him not to go with him? He knows what's about to happen. He knows that he is about to leave, and he knows that the plan all along has been for Elisha to take over as the prophet of the people after him. So this isn't Elijah maybe second-guessing or, or doubting, I see it as a series of final tests. Are you sure you want this? Like, do you really want this? Like, you've seen what this is like. You've seen me do this for a long time. Are you sure that you want to carry this burden with you for the rest of your life? And Elisha holds firm to the path that God has laid out in front of him. He wants to be the one who takes over for Elijah and we're going to see in the next section that he will get his opportunity. Elijah departs, and Elisha steps up. Verse 7, 50 men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. They've been to Jericho, that second stage of the journey, and now they start off towards their third destination, and they come up to the Jordan River. And we're told that Elijah takes off his cloak. The last time that we kind of saw it in play was when he was putting it on Elisha symbolically. Um, and he rolls it up, and we're told that he uses it to smack the water, and that it causes the water to divide so that they can easily walk across on the dry ground. And it might seem like a bit of a frivolous or kind of an unnecessary uh, miracle, and I, I think we'll see the, the point behind it uh, a little bit later. I think we're also, from it, supposed to see some ties 
uh, between Elijah and, and some connections back to Moses. Uh, they were both known for making some unorthodox water crossings, and, and there's some other miracles, crossover and leadership uh, things that we see uh, similar between the two. They get to the other side, and, and, and Elijah and Elisha strike up a conversation. Verse 9, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise it will not. In order for this section to kind of make sense, you you have to really have a a grasp on the inheritance system at that time and how things worked. Um, If you don't read it without that context, Elisha almost comes across as power hungry. What do you want? Oh, I want to be twice as awesome and powerful as you are, Elijah. I want to take the training wheels off this whole prophet thing and really see what we can get done. And and he's not saying that at all. The way that inheritance would have worked back then, if if a father had two sons, instead of dividing things up into two equal halves, he would actually would divide them up into three thirds. The oldest son would inherit two of those, and the youngest son would inherit the third. So he would inherit the leadership of the family would come uh, with that uh, inheritance as well as an additional amount of property and wealth. If it came and there was a a father had three sons, it would be divided up four ways and the the, the oldest son would get two uh, of those sections and so on if there were more children. So Elijah is, or Elisha is not asking for double. Uh, He's actually just asking for the full share. I, I, I want the full inheritance. Elijah, I want to be the next you. I want to inherit your role as the primary prophet of the nation. And Elijah says, we'll see. That that's not really up to me. In verse 11, they were walking along and talking together. Suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. And then he took hold of his garment and he tore it in two. This is one of those scenes I, I would be very interested someday to hear in greater depth uh, from God what it actually looked like, because I think uh, this simple description that we're given leaves a lot unsaid. Um, they're walking along, we're told that a chariot of fire comes and carries Elijah away. Uh, and I think it's important to note, that's an interesting choice, uh, a chariot. Elijah isn't carried away on a fluffy cloud and handed a harp. That's not the scene that we're given. He's picked up in a chariot. He's picked up in a vehicle of war. Elijah's battle is over, and now it is Elisha's turn to fight on God's behalf. And you see in this moment who truly holds the power over life and death. And in all of humanity's history, we're told there are very few that have not felt the sting of death, and Elijah is granted that tremendous honor in this scene. As he's leaving, Elisha cries out, My father, my father! And not a familial tie. Uh, as a child of the 80s, what comes to mind is more of a sensei relationship, sort of a daniel son Miyagi kind of thing. And this is not his father, but it might as well be. So Elisha responds, and what have, would have been a very customary response for his day, he, he reaches up and tears his clothing in two. And I would just like to express, I would like to see this one come back. I think 
There are so many opportunities where this would be an appropriate response. You know, you're driving in the summer and you see a sign that says road construction ahead. Like, just, ah, you know, let it loose. You wake up on a beautiful summer's morning and you open the windows as the fresh smell of smoke fills your house. I mean, just, ah! You get in line at Hot Licks and just as you're about to place your order, one of the employees erases your flavor off the board and you're just like, I mean, I've been there, it hurts. You know, you just want to go, ah! It's just, uh, we got to figure out ways to express grief as a culture, I'm just saying. Um, Elijah's moment, not to make light of it, is, is a bit more significant than that. Uh, he just lost someone who was basically a father to him, and his heart is broken, and he is very reasonably sad, but he will not stay in that state forever. And I think we close this morning with this subtly powerful scene uh, that, that brings the succession from Elijah to Elisha to a close. Verse 13. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Look, they said, we, your servants, have 50 able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elijah replied, do not send them. But they persisted until he was too embarrassed to refuse. So he said, send them. And they sent 50 men who searched for three days but did not find him. And when they returned to Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? We see Elijah, Elisha picks up the cloak from Elisha after he is carried away, the one that had once been draped over his own shoulders uh, as signifying his succession, and now it is his cloak. So he takes it out for a test drive. He's kind of asking himself these questions. Am I the next Elijah? Am I the one that will take over? I've, I've seen how he does this. I've seen him do it before. Maybe it didn't look that hard when Elijah did this miracle the first time, but I'm not sure there's any such thing as an easy miracle. So he tries rolling up the cloak, and we're told that he hits the water, and essentially is asking God, God, do you have my back? Are we doing this? Am I taking over? Am I next in line? And we see in that moment that the water parts. Elisha has learned from Elijah. He has followed him long enough. He knows what he needs to know to take over in his role, and now it is his turn to take the lead prophet role in Israel. We see these other prophets that are around recognize this instantly, and they come up and they're like, you're the captain now. You lead. We bow down to you as our, as our leader. And so they offer themselves and their services to Elisha. They offer to go and look for Elijah's body. You know, maybe he was just relocated. Maybe he got caught up in a, in a gust or something. And Elisha tries to save them the time, but he knows what's happened. He knows they are not going to find him. But they keep begging to the point that eventually, uh, even though it's a complete waste of time, he gives in. Uh, he's still getting his feet wet as, as being the leader. Uh, there were some customs back then about what you needed to do to a dead body and not, in order to not bring uh, dishonor to it. So it almost seems like that's what's driving these prophets to go, if the body was out there, that they needed to go and take care of it. But it brings the life of Elijah to a close 
And that's the end of our time that we'll be spending with Elijah this summer. We see a couple things that he finished his own race well, that, that he finished his own time as the prophet well, but that he was also investing in and passing along what he knew to that next generation. I think that's a major point here at the end of Elijah's last chapter. The story becomes less about him and more about the preparation of those who are going to follow next, and that's primarily of Elisha. If you looked in your your bulletin uh, this morning, the title that I chose for this sermon was Next Man Up. Uh, And this might be shocking, but that's a sports reference coming from me. Uh, And you hear it typically in the context of football, a sport that's filled with with injuries and on any given play, a player can go down and there's a next play coming very soon. So they go and say, next man up, who's who's next in line? It's your turn. We've spent four Sundays together talking about Elijah, some amazing ups and some humbling and, and substantial downs, but at a certain point in time, his role is over. The great Elijah isn't going to be the prophet forever. What role does he need to play to prepare the next generation? And today we see that Elijah, in all of his greatness, needed Elisha. I said earlier, we're supposed to see some connections between uh, you know, Elijah and Moses. I think we're also supposed to see some connections between Moses' successor, Joshua, and Elijah's successor, uh, Elisha. Even as great as Moses was, he wasn't going to get to be the leader that carried the ball into the end zone of the promised land. That was going to fall to Joshua. God wasn't limited with Elijah in what he could only accomplish in one lifetime. He was intending for that work to continue on through Elisha. Even the great Elijah needed help. I like the way uh, one author put it in my, my study this week. He said this, sometimes you need someone to wash your feet. Not in a spa day sort of way, that's, that's not where we're going, but are you helping teach others how to serve? Are you letting others serve you when it's appropriate? Are you not just doing it yourself all the time? And I think that can be hard for a, a number of different reasons. It takes humility to let someone serve you. Maybe you didn't think that somebody else could do it as good as you could do it. Maybe the urgency of kind of what's right in front of your face right now demands your attention, and so it's not a convenient time to train someone else right now. But we see between this story of Elijah and Elijah that God isn't just working on the right here, right now, but he's also building towards the future as well. His plans are bigger than our day-to-day perspective. I'm thankful that uh, about 15 years ago, uh, a youth pastor here at Bethel uh, invited me to teach a Sunday school class to high school students. Uh, I'd never done that before. And there's a part of me that wishes that it was recorded, and there's a wider, wiser part of me that is deeply thankful that there is no lasting evidence of that Sunday, because it was bad. Like, you hear the jokes that I make on a Sunday morning now, like, this is the wiser veteran version of me. Like, go back 15 years and just imagine... But that moment was the start of a journey for me that much to everyone's surprise, myself included, led to me eventually pursuing a life in ministry. We're reminded that God is working on right now, today, what's right in front of us, but that he's also working on tomorrow and the day after that. 
And so the next generation is going to have their moment if the Lord doesn't come back before then. And I'm proud of, of Bethel Church. I'm thankful for this church that, that we are uh, investing in the next generations. Because someday, and in, in all reality, sooner than we think, it will be their turn to pick up the cloak and carry on the mission. So my hope with this series on Elijah, I hope that you've been blessed and encouraged. As we were reminded the first week from uh, the epistle of James that Elijah was a man just like us. He wasn't superhuman, but he served a God just like the one that we serve, and he was willing to let that God work through him in some pretty amazing ways. I want to close with kind of the the thoughts that we shared uh, the first week together. Elijah wasn't great because he was a great man. Elijah was great because he obediently served a great God. Do you share that same faith? Do you share that same belief in the power of our God? Are you going where he's leading you? Are you willing to follow him? Let me pray. Lord, I am thankful that you are God, and that you are at work building your church and, and building up your body, that, that you are working through the here and the now, and yet, Lord, you are also building towards what's next. And you know that, and you know what's down the road, and you know what's around the corner. Heavenly Father, give us a confidence in you. Give us a trust in you to see what you are doing, to follow where you're going, to believe that if we are obedient and willing to follow you, Lord, that you will work through us. Heavenly Father, it takes a lot of trust. At times our faith may dip and wane, but you will be there with us. As we've seen through Elijah, even when we walk through the valleys, Lord, you walk right beside us. Heavenly Father, as a church, I pray that we would invest in the next generation, that we would invest uh, in what you will continue to do, that we will have a bigger picture view than just what is right in front of us. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you are doing. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.